the sermon by thanking all of you who've jumped in with uh, a need that's come up within our community. No doubt many of you uh, heard about the fire that raged through an apartment building in West Philadelphia this week and um, really destroyed uh, a number of uh, people's people's uh, all, all their stuff within that. And there's a couple within our community, Dave and Don, who uh, were out of town this week and uh, their, uh, their, all their belongings were lost. And I wanted to especially call attention to this this morning because I've been very thankful to watch the uh, West Philly and Center City West home meetings jump in and jump in with both feet. And uh, I wanted to give our community an opportunity to participate in, in walking with them and helping them. Uh, we have created an emergency relief fund within our church. If you would like to give specifically to uh, help them out with uh, their possessions, uh, with kind of putting life back together. They lost everything. And they're in a position where they really are in need of help. And we would invite you um, to join in. This is how the church exercises being the church together. And I just really wanted to publicly thank those home meetings who have taken a real lead with this already uh, and give the rest of you an opportunity to participate. So... Please make note of that. You can uh, make a contribution online or send a check to our, our church office. You just put emergency relief fund in the, uh, in the four line item, okay? Um, so have you ever been driving somewhere down the road and you sort of come to and you don't realize, you, you realize you have not thought about the last 20 minutes? Uh, you know, you've been driving down the highway and you're, you're just going and you're kind of like, oh wait, I am driving and I'm not, I don't know how I got here. Um, this has been happening more and more to me on my bicycle, which is really frightening. Uh, I'll show up at the church office and I'm like, I don't remember crossing the Ben Franklin Parkway or navigating the traffic. And I'm like, I don't remember the last 15 minutes. It's really frightening. Um, I remember driving home from college one time. And it's about a three-hour drive from my, my campus to my home. And I was driving, and there was this one turn that you're supposed to take. And I went up, up I-77, down I-81. Every time it's the same thing. So I'm just trucking, you know, and I'm in, like, the world of happy place. And I, I wake up, sort of, and I realize I have no idea where I am. And, and I had driven another 30 miles, like, just kept going, you know, it's a nice day, good songs, and I'm somewhere. And, you know, this morning, uh, as, as we gather uh, and we look at God's Word, I'm going to sort of take a, a time out from our normal, uh, we're in this uh, sermon series looking at sexuality. We'll pick that up next week and the next one after that. But I want us to think this morning, how did we get here? You know, some of you have been around this church for a long time, and some of you have been just here for, you know, just a few months. And it's very easy for a church to also go kind of on autopilot. You know, we're just kind of cruising along. You know, things are looking good. And, and I want us this morning to have an opportunity to think, how did we get here? You know, where are we? And who brought us here? We're going to look at this passage. Um, this passage was, uh, is, is written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth. And it's written to a church in, that's a, very much like this church. And to a people in a city that's a lot like our city. The city of Corinth uh, lay in the middle of the Greek peninsula. And in 50 BC, the Romans came in and just laid the thing to waste. They just conquered everything. And Julius Caesar had the whole thing thrown to the ground. I mean, torn down. And he rebuilt the city. And 
therefore, um, by the time that Paul wrote this letter, this was a brand new city. 500,000 people lived there. It was the center of trade and culture and economics at that time. It was like, this was a big jewel of a city. And yet there was nobody who was from there. There were no native Corinthians. And there was nobody who had grown up there. These are, these are all people who were transplants. And he writes to a little church that's trying to figure out how to live with integrity as people of faith within their city. It's a church with a lot of problems. And, you know, there are lots of things about this church and this city that remind me of Philadelphia. And it's, therefore, it's a very appropriate passage for us to look at this morning. As we're people, many of you are from all over the place. We're a young church that's trying to figure out who we are and how we love this city. Now, I'm very thankful that we don't have some of the problems that this church had. And we'll get to that in a moment. But as Paul writes this church, his words probably stung. We read in the first part of there, he he addresses them as babies. He says, you're a bunch of babies. You're a bunch of infants. And he says some pretty rough things. He says, you know, look, in the first verse, he says, I would like to be able to address you as spiritual people, but instead I have to address you as people who are of the flesh. I wanted to just think with you about what that means. When Paul says, of the flesh... um, he means one of three different things. And he uses it three different ways in his writings. So uh, some of you were here last week and you heard some teaching about the flesh and with regard to our sexuality and what does it mean to starve the flesh. And so one of the ways that Paul uses that word is to describe our sinful nature. That by nature we are opposed to God. We live according to our desires. The other way is that Paul describes that is bodies. Right? Your flesh and bone. And when Paul says that, he doesn't say that the flesh is bad. You know, when he speaks of the flesh as the sinful nature, he's like, that's corrupt. That's something that is fallen, and Jesus is redeeming us. When he talks about our physical bodies, he's not speaking of like, hey, your physical body is bad, and you're just a container for your soul. So we've talked about some of this in the sexuality series. But in this passage, he uses it in another way. And he's specifically speaking to how they think. He's like, I'd like to be able to address you as people who are spiritual in the way that you view the world. But instead, I have to address you as people of the flesh. People who just kind of think like everybody else does. Who kind of have the same mindset that everyone else does. And he's going to address in this passage three ways that he finds them to be immature. You know... As he speaks of babies, I really resonate with this passage. I love babies. I really love babies. I have a friend, we were out for lunch recently, and we're walking around, and I'm just fixated on this child that's like sitting over at this other table. And he's like, you know, I get it. I know how you and Susan have all these babies. Because you love them. And I do. I've told many of you parents that uh, when I do baptisms, I would be glad to take this child home with us, and I wouldn't even feel bad for you. Right? I, I don't feel guilty. I'm fine with that. You know, we are baby people. Um, and so, you know, but if you think about babies, you know, um, babies are wonderful. And yet, a child, an, an infant that remains for several years the same size, with the same inabilities to feed themselves or to care for self, is not cute. It's scary. Parents who have children who are not developing, they're not like, oh, we get to keep the baby forever. 
They're freaking out. They have to go to the doctor. There's something wrong. There's, there's something to get worried about. And Paul says, look, be careful. You know, the, you're, you should be a, bigger than this by now. You should be progressing and maturing and you're still little and it's not as cute as it was. You know, so he writes this to a group of people and he, he asks this question. Are you growing up? Is there growth in you? You know, one of my favorite TV shows is Arrested Development. And it's funny, but it's not so funny when we think of arrested development in the church. What does it mean to be people who live and continue to be at a place of immaturity? And so this passage speaks to us as Paul wrote it to that church in the first century and asks us the question, are we growing up? Are we maturing? You know, I want to look at three different ways that God calls us to have a mature view, to have a a more adult view on his people, on his church. And first I want to look, as this passage does, at the leaders. You know, when people read the New Testament uh, and and they talk about the Bible, you've, you've probably, you maybe have heard people say this, I wish we could go back to the New Testament days. I wish we could go back to the early church, as if that was the time when everything was wonderful and people really got it, and they really lived it, and it was it was a time of passion, and it was a time when people really were connected to Jesus. And, you know, so it's it's easy to have this nostalgia, that kind of, uh, of this brush of idealism over the New Testament church. And yet, when you read a letter like 1 Corinthians, it kind of pops that bubble really hard. 1 Corinthians... Paul writes to a church where they were getting drunk at the communion table, where there was a guy in the church who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. You know, when there were fights and discords within the, the community, people were deeply divided against each other. And so, no idealism. We've got to pop that balloon. And, you know, because the problem with the church in Corinth is the problem that we continue to face today. One, one writer, Craig Blomberg, has said this, that the problem in the early church in Corinth was that the culture of the city had infiltrated the culture of the church. And this is nothing that's unique to this congregation. This is common. It's common for the culture of of the city, the culture of the way we think as a human perspective, living according to the flesh, to color the way that we look at the church. And this is particularly in view in this passage as he talks about their leaders, as he talks about those who are leading the church. You know, So here's what was going on. You see in this passage, some people were saying, I follow Apollos. And other people were saying, I follow Paul. And and there was a a, a line almost right down the middle of the congregation. And some people were saying, look, this guy Apollos, the way that he puts things, you know, I just think this man has really, the way he puts stuff, it it just resonates with me. And other people said, no, 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 Paul, Paul's got the right balance of teaching. You know, Paul's the one who's, he, I really get him. I'm a follower of him. You know, and this is common today. It's common for people today to have a similar view with regard to the leadership. To say, you know what, I overly identify a pastor as the center of the church. So that even within our liberty movement, I've heard people say this. They've said, oh yeah, um... Liberty East, that's Steve's church. Liberty South Philly, that's Jared's church. And Liberty Fairmount, that's Jeff's church. And yet, no. What does the Bible show us here? No. 
we can't, we don't, you don't want to assign a person to those congregations. You say, no, this is Jesus' church. This is his church. He is the owner. He's the one who makes it grow. Who's Paul? Who's Apollos? Neither the one who waters, you know, neither the one who plants the seed or waters is anything. Only God gives the growth. Pastors, we don't, we don't own anything. I don't own anything here. I am not, this isn't my church. This is Jesus' church. And the same is true, the vice versa. You know, nor does the Corinthian church own Paul or the Corinthian church own Apollos. These are men who have been called to be stewards. You know, um, I've been recently rereading uh, The Lord of the Rings, which I don't know if you knew this, but all pastors are required to do that every year. And so I've been rereading this, and there's a nation called Gondor, okay? And in The Lord of the Rings, in this, in this, you walk into the throne room of Gondor, and there's no king. You walk in the throne room, and there's a big throne up here, and down below there's a chair. And there's a guy who, Denethor, who's the, the Lord, he, he's, the, he's Lord Denethor, he's supposed to be the steward over the nation. But what happens, the tension in this, is that they've had a steward for so long, and they haven't had a king, the question is, you know, will the people recognize the real king when he walks in the room? You know, the the tension there, the people have been treating the steward as if he was the king, and the king has been treating himself. I mean, the the Lord Denethor, the, the steward, has been treating himself as the king. And the question is, will these people recognize the real king? You know, it's it's folly to mix the king up with the steward in the nation of Gondor, it's also, it's also dangerous to mix up a pastor as the shepherd with the real shepherd, the real king of this church, the one who really owns this church, the one who really is in charge. You know, and it's easy for me to do that. It's easy for me, as steward, to say, no, this is my congregation. You know, there have been times I've been like, you know, and you can talk to pastors. They're like, we had an up Sunday and I'm suddenly up. I have a down Sunday and I'm down. You know, pastors have a hard time sometimes separating that. But so do people. It's equally easy for other people to forget that a pastor is really a steward. Here's why. Here's why. Think back on the baby image. Think back on this image of the baby. Look, you know... A baby needs someone to tend to it all the time. A baby needs someone to feed it, to care for it, to provide everything for it. And some Christians are like babies. In the sense they're like, you know, I really need a nurse to come and take care of me and to tend to me and always be giving me attention. To always be kind of hovering and making sure everything's okay. And there are a lot of Christians who don't go past this. They look to their pastor and say, you're the one. You're the only one I really get God's word from. You're the only one who like really feeds me. And they don't know how to feed themselves. They don't know how to go to God's word themselves and get grace and access. Like they don't know how, how to, they don't regularly make it a practice of opening up God's word and making it part of their lives. They don't spend time with other people talking about spiritual things. They spend time with other Christians, but they're not pushing each other. They're not getting in there with each other. You know, if that's what immaturity looks like, what is maturity? One of the pictures of maturity is that we would grow up. We would be people who say, you know what, I go to God myself. 
I'm not dependent on a nurse. I don't need somebody to hover over or tend to me all the time. I can go get this for myself. But another way that we know that we're maturing is that when we can receive grace and God's word from all kinds of people, it doesn't have to be one person. You know, one of the encouraging things about ministering here at Liberty for me over the last eight and a half years has been that God has given us, he's, he's been faithful in providing a great team and a deep bench. A great team and a deep bench. Some of you are new to Liberty and you may not have memory, institutional memory of all these names. But one of the things that's been so encouraging are the other people besides me whom God has used to shepherd and tend this flock. You know, some people who are gone. Let me, let me remind you. Some people who are moved on to other churches. Steve Huber, who's over in Liberty East. Doug Logan, who's part of Rocks, who led Roxborough for seasons, preached here many times. Steve Lutz, who faithfully ministered at, at um, Temple University and then, you know, here within our congregation. Dave and Sarah Bro, who, he was our music guy for a long time and led a home meeting. Really dynamic people. You know, I think of um, Bethany Ferguson, who's now serving over in Sudan. Talitha Brower, who's over in, um, in Prague. I think of um, Sarah Weiss, who we sent out to California. You know, Corey and Deeb, I, I could go on. There's so many names that God has used to shepherd this congregation. You know, it's one of the encouraging things. Many of you could add other names to that. You could say, yes, this person... For that season was a part of my life. They spoke God's word into my life. And I want to remind you of this because this has not been the Bradford show. The Holy Spirit has provided a deep bench, a great team for this church. You know, I also want to remind you to look around now. One of the most encouraging things to me over these last two years is seeing the leaders that God has raised up. We have so many strong home meeting leaders, servant leaders, deacons, people who are leading music, you know, ministry team leaders. And God has provided abundantly for this community. God has continued to show his faithfulness. Listen, one of the signs of future hope is looking back at God's past faithfulness and remembering, God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the way you've provided people. You know, look at the reversal in this passage. The, the, the passage, these people start off and they're saying, look, I'm with Paul, and some other people are like, no, I'm with Apollos. And, and you go down to the end of the passage, and Paul says some very interesting things here. He's, he kind of blows apart their language. He, he says, you know, he says, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You have Paul and you have Apollos? That's not all you have. He adds another name to the list. He says, you know, all things are yours. Paul? Apollos, Cephas, that was Peter. And then he adds some categories that kind of seem bizarre to us. Life and death, the present and the future. All things are yours. Why why is he saying this? He's saying, don't be so naive. Don't be so small-minded. You know, he's saying, sure, you have Paul, but you have all this other stuff. God is rich in his faithful mercy to his church and providing for his people. Your thinking is too small. So what about us? Are we mature? Are we maturing in the way that we look at our leaders? 
The second area which, which Paul calls them to maturity is to look at the nature of the church. To look at the nature of the church. And, you know, in Corinth, you know, if the, the, the culture of the city was infiltrating the, the community, no less is that happening with us many times. For many Christians, the culture of the world kind of shapes the way that we view the church. And so there's lots of language that describes the church as you know, it's kind of corporate talk or, or ways of thinking about church as institution or organization. You know, as if that's all this is. You know, thinking about, uh, it'd be like, you know, the elders, they're kind of like the board of directors. Bradford's kind of like the president. You know, we have a little corporate thing going on here. We're into marketing. We're into kind of like selling ourselves. We need to think the best strategies for, you know, increasing production and growth. And that's a way that a lot of Christians think about what it means to be part of the church. And Paul says, no. No. He calls them to think. In fact, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, the, the phrase that you repeat over and over, he repeats over and over again, the only place in the New Testament he says it like 13 times is, don't you know? Hey, don't you know? And he says here, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Not a corporation, not an organization. The temple of the Holy Spirit. There are two words that are used in the New Testament to describe the temple. So one is the word Huron, which it actually refers to the structures of the temple. So like the buildings, um, the grounds, the, the courtyards, everything re- related to the structure. And he doesn't use that word. He doesn't say, you are the, you're like a structure. He says, no, he, he uses the word naos, which is a word that means the sanctuary, the holy of holies. The place where God dwells. The naos in the temple. And these people would have known this at that time. They would have said, I know what he's talking about. This is the place where people came to sacrifice. This is the place where they're like, God dwells there in his power and his presence. And we go there to pray. We, go, we pray that direction. We look to the temple because that's where we know God is. And he says, no, you're the temple. You are the temple. You know, and he says this, and it's, it's, a, it's a powerful image. It's a powerful image. God dwelling in the midst of sinful people. God coming and make his presence known among us. This is what we sing about over Christmas. God with us, Emmanuel. God here. And yet, you've got to ask a question. Who's he talking about? Don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? You know... In another well-known text, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is talking about sexuality. And he's saying, don't you know, look, if you have sex with a prostitute, don't you know that you're the temple, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And of course he's talking about an individual person. He's saying, don't you know that your singular body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? That's not what he's talking about here. Here, Paul speaks in Southern. Right? He's like, Y'all, don't you know? Look, look, don't y'all know that you, y'all yourselves, okay, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit lives in y'all. That's how he talks. It's with a draw and everything. Right, you know, but we don't think like this. I mean, how many of us think this like this? Together, we're a temple? 
what? You know, I'm my own person. I make my own decisions. I'm thinking about what I'm doing next, you know, for this weekend. I'm, 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 I'm into my hobbies. I'm into my sports. Yes, I'm part of this church, but I'm doing my own thing. And Paul says, no. Y'all. God's spirit dwells here with us. You know, a lot of Christians like to sing the song, you know, from Simon and Garfunkel, I am a rock, I am an island. You know, so look, that's the way we think about stuff. I'm a rock, I'm an island, I'm, it's me, me and Jesus. And Jesus. And you know what Paul says? No, you're not that kind of rock. Elsewhere in the Bible, in 1 Peter, it tells us you are living stones being built into a spiritual house for God. In Ephesians 2, it says this, you know, you're of God's household. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. You're being built together. It's a habitation, a dwelling for God in the spirit. We together are God's temple. God dwells in the midst of his people. And look, if we are the temple, doesn't this need to challenge the way we think about this group of people we're in the room with? You know, is the future of the church shaky? That's a question. If God dwells in the midst of his people, I need to hear from you. Is the future of the church shaky? No, it's not. You know, is it, what's the essential ingredient in Liberty Church? Good plans? Good leadership? Beautiful building? It's the Holy Spirit. It's his Holy Spirit who dwells among us. You know, does the church grow by human planning or human wisdom? No. It's because his spirit is here. He dwells with his people. Are we maturing? We're growing up in our picture of what it means to be part of his people, be part of his body. Finally, let's look at the last maturity issue. You know, when Paul writes this Letter, he good in verses 11 through 14, and it almost sounds like the three little pigs and the big bad wolf. Right? He's like, look, you know, do you build with wood, hay, and straw? Do you build with gold, silver, and precious stones? Why is he saying this? The same point that's in the three little pigs. Are you building in such a way that it's going to last? Are you building with something that's going to last? I grew up in this house. Uh, in East Tennessee, it was the first house that was built on our block. It was a farmhouse. And uh, it was built in the 1920s. And before there were uh, sawzalls and, and, and uh, circular saws and all the things that make construction really fast. And you could have parked a truck on the second floor of this house. It was unbelievable. And uh, I remember, like, we had some folks do some work on the house. And they pulled up the hardwood floors. And at the time, I'm like normal middle school kid. I'm, I don't have any idea what's under the floorboards of a house. So they pull up the nice flooring, and underneath are these is the subfloor. And the subfloor is nothing special to look at. I mean, it's planks. But this subfloor was cut on a cross angle. It was laid oak planks on a diagonal angle to the house. So it was like a million little triangles, which if you know anything about construction, is like you can't, this thing's never going to fall down, Right? And I contrast that with driving around my neighborhood now. Uh, Right in here in Francisville, there's all kinds of houses going up. And I watch these things, and they go up like this. I mean, I'm like, really? Did you guys put this together with Legos? Because it's so fast. And you see some of their materials, and I'm like, particle board, really? 
That's like wood chips held together with glue. That's going to last 10 minutes. Right? I compare that because Paul is saying here, how are we building? You know, if Jesus is the foundation, if he is the cornerstone, then his call to us is like, hey, are you going to build with materials that are in keeping with the foundation? Are you just going to throw this up? Is, is church just kind of like, what well, you know, like we're just going to, we're just going to make this very fast, very, very superficial. You know, Paul warns about building in line with the foundation. Now, here's where the rubber hits the road on this, okay? Paul's not writing this to a pastor's conference. He's not writing this letter to a bunch of weird pastors who like to wear earth tones, who are all standing in a room together, right, in comfortable shoes. That's what we all look like anyway, so right? I mean, so he's not writing this to a bunch of people like me. He's writing this to you. He's writing this to a church of normal people. And he's saying, what are you building with? What are you building with? See, he does say, you know, that you're God's field, you're God's building. But then he also says things like this. You know, what each one, what each one, as God's fellow workers, each one should be careful how he builds. Here's the point. What you're building is what we are building. What you are building with your life, the decisions you make, the degree to which you invest in relationships with each other, the degree to which you confess sin to each other, the degree to which you bear burdens, that's what we're building. You know, a lot of people look at church, and, the, and this is how they evaluate church. Do I like the pastor and what the pastor is building? That's not in line with what the Bible shows us. The picture is, what are we building? What are we building? Is it of lasting value? Does it matter? You know, you see, we are all members of God's workforce. There are no part-time Christians. There are no people who can do this for the weekend. You don't moonlight as a Christian. And therefore, every one of us, every one of us, what you do matters. Some of you will plant seeds. Some of you will water seeds. Some of you will show up in home meeting and tend the soil of young Christians. Some of you will plant seeds in people's lives that as you open up your mouth and you are honest about the gospel in your life, begins to bear fruit in the lives of other people. Some of you will be like spring rains in the lives of others. You will come in with encouragement in a time when someone is just about to throw up their hands in the air and walk away. See, it matters what you do. This passage tells us that there will come a day where you, if you're a follower of Jesus, will stand before the Lord And he's not going to say, hey, what did you get out of Liberty Church? Did you like the sermons? He's not going to say, hey, did you you really just, you know, did you enjoy your time there? He's going to say, what did you build? What did you build? You know, what was the quality of your work? You know, I want to encourage you. One of the things that has so blessed me and Susan over the last year, as we have like kind of taken a step back is that there was a time when everything we felt like was, we were the catalyst for everything. You know, like if something's going to happen, people are going to respond, people are going to organize things. It was on our shoulders to make happen. You know, here's some of the things that have happened in this past year. You know, this picture this very past week. You know, we knew about Dave and Dawn and their apartment fire, but we, I had nothing to do with making that go. With the organization of people, people mobilizing, let's jump in, let's help out. I've been kind of like, Wow, 
We came back from vacation this summer, and Susan was remarking. She was like, gosh, you know, everything's kind of going here without us. We look around and we're like, there are new people who are being brought into the community life. There are people who are being welcomed, people who are being invited in. There are people whose lives are being meshed in with this community because of you. I went on the leadership retreat this fall, and there's 70 leaders from our church there. People are committed. People are like, I'm going to step forward, and I'm going to take, I'm going to be part of the team. I got my jersey on. I'm scared to go into the game, but I'm here. It's just been so encouraging. Things that have started this year, the Arts Collective, you know, we had nothing to do with the Basketball League, you know, the Saturday gatherings at the park with kids. I could go on and on and on. You're building. God is working through you. I have two words by way of closing. One is, you may be sitting here and feel kind of shifting in your chair. You know, like, okay, you know, I've been a Christian maybe for a while, and I can honestly say I'm not real plugged in. I don't really use my gifts in any of these ways. This all sounds really nice, but I don't have this perspective. And look what Paul says. The gospel doesn't work the way that most of us think it works. Unfaithful people, as he says here, you know, you may, you may spend your whole life not really doing anything, and yet God is faithful to his people. If he has died for your sins, if you're a person who owns Christ, he's gracious to you. You know, he's, he's saying, look, each person's work will be examined. Stuff may be burned off, but you're going to escape as a person's escaping through flames. The gospel doesn't work by the good are in, the faithful are in, the bad are out. No, the gospel works this way. All the unfaithful are invited to be the bride of the most faithful groom, Jesus Christ, who came and laid down his life for us and invites us into a love relationship and says, you know what, I have plans for you. I want to unleash your joy in this world. And if you hold on to your life and you try to control it and make it all about you, you're going to miss out. But if you're a part of my kingdom, if you'd be willing to like, actually be a part of my people and be a part of what they're doing and I'm doing among them, you'll find your joy. Last thing I want to say is this. You know, just as there's a nostalgia sometimes for the New Testament, there can be nostalgia within churches. Some of you have been around long enough and you're like, I wish, I sort of missed the good old days. You know, I miss the good old days. I've, I've, I've said goodbye to a lot of people. There's been times that, you know, I've packed up U-Haul trucks and sent my heart off in the back of a U-Haul with that, that couple that we built, we built life with. You know, and I want to ask you to take a, a picture from the human body. Right? Your body, the biologists tell us, physiologists tell us, look, it's, it's physiologically different. Seven years. Every seven years, every cell in your body is replaced. You're not the same person, physically speaking, than you were seven years ago. You're the same you, Right? You look the same in the mirror, maybe a little not so good, but you know, like, you're the same you. You're also not the same you, but you're the you, but you're also not the same you emotionally, right? You've changed. Seven years has also changed your life. You have different perspectives. You've had different experiences. You have different relationships, and those have informed who you are. Sometimes within the church, we want to capture a picture. This was the glory day. This was the time when things were really happening, when things were really happening. I'd like to just freeze that moment, and that's the way it's always going to be. Do you know what you do with a human body when you do that? The only time that cells are kind of frozen and they always stay the same is when it's dead. We are a church where 
some cells, they're going off. And they're going, you know, and blessing other places. And there are new cells being added. And this body is not the same that it was. And we praise God for that. Because it's alive. Because God's work is here. His presence is here. There's a life. Jesus is here. And, you know, I encourage you to remember the Carly Simon song. Look, these are the good old days. Right? Jesus is alive among his people. And this is his people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.